Amen, and that that would be uh, just our heart's cry and our prayer, uh, as we maybe long for and desire for things that we do not have, we wish things were different than they are, that we would be satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone, that we would be able to say, not just in a song, but with our hearts and with our lips, give me Jesus, you can have all this world, just give me Jesus, that's enough. We're in uh, sort of the middle of a series, it's been, uh, I used to preach here, my name is Jeremy Nelson, uh, and uh, it's been a few weeks, um, and uh, been a good few weeks. We started a series four weeks ago uh, called In But Not Of, different from the world for the good of the world. We started in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. I preached that sermon, and the big idea of that was this was that by God's mercy, we are different people living different lives for the good of the world and the glory of God. That's where we started a few weeks ago. The following week, Rich Turchia was here, and he preached from Acts chapter 1, verse 8, reminding us that we who trust in Christ have been indwelt with the Holy Spirit, that we might be witnesses in the world right around us and in the world far from us. That was followed the next week by Chad Fincham preaching a powerful sermon from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Uh, the, the parable that Jesus told of the Good Samaritan, as he was telling people, he, you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. And as he tried to define then who a neighbor was, he tells this surprising story that kind of went up against the, the racial, racial and religious prejudices of the day and reminding people that in this story, it was the Samaritan who was the one who was good. And Chad challenged us to ask the question to ourselves, who is our Samaritan? And then last week, we kind of took a break from the series as our associate pastor candidate came and preached um, from the book of Joshua. Now today, we're getting back into the series, Isaiah chapter 46. I've never preached a sermon, one of the, my favorite books in the Bible, and I looked at my files, I've never preached a sermon ever out of the book of Isaiah. So this will be the first one, Isaiah chapter 46. If you have a Bible, Go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 46. It's a book in the Old Testament around the middle of your Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, there's a table of contents in the beginning that will help you find uh, the right book. And remember that in this series, the emphasis is how on how we are to be different from the world around us for the good of the world around us. But as we focus many times on, on the difference that we need to be from those around us, we need to remember that the reason that we are to be different from the world around us is because we worship a God who is different from the gods that the world around us serves, right? The God that we worship is holy. That's why we are called then to be holy or different from those around us. We worship a God who is like no other. And so the book of Isaiah uh, could be separated into about three different sections, and we're going to be in the second of the three sections of the book of Isaiah today. And Isaiah, in this second section, is addressing people for a situation they're going to find themselves in in the future. God's people are going to be taken from the land that God had given them, and they are going to become exiles living in Babylon. 
And Isaiah writes this middle section of the book prophesying that this is to happen and preparing God's people to go and to live in a land where they are surrounded by people who worship other gods. In, in their own land, most of the people knew and worshipped the one true God, the God of the Bible. But as they're sent and spread out in exile, many of the, the people will be surrounded by people who are worshipping other gods. And so surrounded by other gods in the middle of a powerful nation, the challenge they're going to have is this, is the God of Israel really the one true God? They'll be doing some comparing in their mind. And, and in the passage we're going to look at today, God will speak very clearly and directly through the prophet Isaiah, but these are the words of the Lord, through the prophet to the people, reminding them that He alone is God. There is no one like Him. And the gods that the people all around them are worshiping are silly compared to Him. We're going to see that in the passage today. This is the Word of God, and so if you're able to, would you stand as we look at Isaiah 46, verses 5 through 11. Listen to God's word, it's powerful. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it doesn't answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking so clearly and so directly, initially to people 2,700 years ago, preparing them for a time 100 years in their future, now far in our past, but what you, what you declared there is still true, that as we live in a place where, where people around us worship many other gods and we ourselves are going to be drawn and tempted to worship the gods of the people around us, God, would you, by the power of your Spirit, help us, even as I preach and, and declare uh, truth from hopefully your word now, would you be at work by your Spirit to help us to see the unique greatness and glory of you, the one true God, that we would believe that, and that that would change the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. Only two points today. One is other gods, the other one is God. Okay, so we're going to start as the passage starts by looking at other gods, verses 5 through 7. There's a spot in your bulletin with a spot to take notes along with some application questions. Now, I just read the passage, but I want you to put yourself in the shoes 
of one of those, or maybe sandals, uh, of one of those exiles. Okay? People that had been probably relatively comfortable living in your own land with your own people, surrounded by people that spoke your own language, ate the food you were used to eating, living in the comfort of your own home, going to your own temple to worship. But then one day all of that changes as you are taken into exile by a much wealthier and more powerful empire. The Babylonians come and take you from where you've always lived, everything you've always known, and now you are to go and you're separated from those that you know and from everything familiar to you. And you now go live in a land where people don't speak your language, they don't eat your food, their homes don't look like your homes. You're in exile. And as you get shaken up in this, you might start to wonder, especially if your faith is a bit weak, You might start to wonder, don't you think, if the gods that they are all worshiping might be more powerful than your God. After all, they're the powerful, wealthy nation. They're the ones that seem to be so blessed. Maybe their God is more powerful than your God. After all, the God of Israel is the God of a nation that really hardly even exists any longer. They've been taken away and spread out, not even living in your own land. And so you can see the temptation of those people living in this land, surrounded by people who worship other gods, to, to wonder. I wonder if their gods might be more powerful and more real than our God. After all, their gods are visible. You can see their gods. I've never seen the God of Israel, this God that we worship. I've never seen him, but they can see their gods. You see how the people might be tempted to worship other gods. So I wanted you to feel that before we jump into looking at each of these verses. It begins, uh, by the way, uh, this is kind of the final case that's being made, but a number of times in the book of Isaiah, it's, it's as though God is making a case against these idols, saying, I see it. I see all the gods that these other people are worshiping. But over and over again in the book of Isaiah, it's as though God is making a case to show that he alone is the one true God and their gods are silly at best. And this is the last time that he'll do that here in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46, starting in verse 5. Verse 5 almost reads like a dare, doesn't it? It's as though God is saying to the people, to whom will you liken me? Is is there anybody else? Go ahead, look around. Anybody else like me? Anybody who can be my equal? Who are you going to compare me to? Am Am I just like one of these other gods? These gods, the people around you, am I like them? Is that me in any way? It's like a dare. It's a question that God argues his case with. And then he starts talking about their gods. He's going to make the case. Before he talks about himself, he's going to make the case for the silliness of the other gods. Okay? So, verse 6, that's where he goes. He says, Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales. Okay? He's going to talk about the gods that they make. And I want you to note this, that the other gods are not worthless in the sense that they have no value. 
the other gods that these people are worshiping have a lot of value. Gold and silver are very precious metals, right? And they're using their own gold and their own silver, and they're going to have gods made out of it. So here's what they do. God says they hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. So they have something that is extremely valuable to them, and they bring it to a, a person who works and has skill to take gold and precious metals and make them into something. And they say, make me a god. And that's what the goldsmith does. You can make a pretty good living making little gods that people want to have in their own household. And so a goldsmith will do that. And then how do the people respond? They fall down and worship. Can you imagine this? You've got a purse full of gold, the most valuable possession you have, you take it to a goldsmith, you tell him, make this into a god, he calls you up on your phone a few days later, or sends a text and says, your god is ready now, you go and you pick up your god, you see this god that he has made out of the gold that you've given to him, you're a little disappointed, it might be smaller than you thought, maybe he kept some of the gold for himself, and you fall down and worship. That's what God is pointing out. This is what the people around you do, God says. They make gods, and then they fall down and worship it. (laughs) But then God starts to say, listen to how silly this is, though. Verse 7. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. Notice who's doing all the work here. The gods of the people, that they're, is that God doing any work? No. You want that God to do anything? you got to do it. They lift it up. They carry it. They set it in its place. If they don't do anything, the God doesn't do anything. Right? God is trying to point out how silly it is to be worshiping these gods that have been made by a goldsmith in town. It stands there. What does this God do? It stands there. It cannot even move from its place. And these people who are falling down to worship this God, they call out in times of help. It's not raining and they need rain, so they will fall down and they will implore their God to send them rain. If one cries to it, though, God says, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Silly, isn't it? That you would think that you could take what you have, something of great value, you would invest in it, give it to a goldsmith, he makes a god, the god comes back, you fall down and worship it, you're in trouble, you cry out, guess what's going to happen? Nothing. You want that god to do something? Guess who's going to have to do it? You. You pick it up, you move it. God is trying to point out to the people of Israel, the gods of the nations, the gods of the people all around you, are silly. Okay? You get that? And then we can say, so we can read a passage like this, and we can kind of chuckle, and, and here's, here's our, our easy response. Hey, at least we don't have gods like that. Right? We're not like that. I took a picture of the little Buddha at Chung Garden. Okay? Right? But we're not like that. Or are we? We don't worship little gods like that. We're not tempted in that way like God's people were in Babylon. We're not tempted to worship the same gods that the culture around us. We're not like that. 
Or are we, maybe a little bit? Do we also need to be reminded, like the people did in Isaiah's day, there's a lot of things around us that can become gods. Things of value. So I've got some stuff on the table. You've probably been wondering what's under the ugly green t-shirt, right? What's under there? Well, I've got some stuff. I'll show you. These are all things that can become gods. Now, certainly, we wouldn't look at any of these things. They, they're, they're representing things, right? We're not going to look at any of these things and say, wow, yeah, that's what I want to worship. But in many ways, the things that I have under these t-shirts and in my pocket are things that are competing with the one true God for our heart. These are things that are competing with the one true God for our attention, for our minds, for our time, for our money. All these things that compete for that. One thing that God has given to many of us is He has given us jobs. Okay, So I, uh, I uncovered some of my childhood toys, a, a tractor there, because I know a number of you work in agriculture. Okay, God has provided a, a number of us here with a job, a way that we can use the skills and gifts that God has given us in order to serve other people for the common good in some way, and sometimes we even make an income from it. Some of you have jobs where you don't get paid anything for it, right? Uh, that you, that your, your job is, is being a stay-at-home mom, and you do more work than all the rest of us, and you don't get paid anything for it, right? But we have these jobs that God has given to us as a gift. Is it possible that our jobs can turn into a God? Yes. And we notice that when our, when our attitude kind of goes up and down based on how things are going at work. That if we're having success at work, we're feeling pretty good about life. We even say we're successful if we're, we're doing well at work. But when stuff isn't going well at work, and so if the case, you know, you're a farmer and, and you're doing hard work, but, but maybe the weather isn't turning out right, or maybe uh, the grain prices are just really bad, or whatever it might be, and if you notice that your attitude toward life and your level of contentment is constantly rising and falling based on how things are going at work, we must ask ourselves, am I making my work into something that it ought not to be? Is it possible that I'm tempted to make my work into a God? We could ask ourselves this question. What does my degree of contentment say about what I value most or worship? Another thing that I think especially in America we're tempted to worship is we're tempted to worship the American dream. So under this t-shirt, I have a Corvette okay, and a house. This is what people want. We live here and we want to uh, fulfill and, and accomplish the American dream. And it's so easy, especially if you have HGTV, to turn your house into an idol. That it becomes this thing that starts to just consume you. Like, like all of your money gets sunk into constantly updating your home or constantly updating your vehicle. We want to try and keep up with the people around. This is a temptation, isn't it? In the world that we live in, it's a temptation to turn the American dream into an idol or a god. It's quite possible to do that. And we ought to then ask ourselves, 
What does my monthly spending say about what I value most or worship? If you were to take take account of that, to look at what am I pouring my money into, what does that say about what I value? Now, again, are our jobs valuable? Yes, just like the gods of the Babylonians had value to them, but they were not worthy of worship. So our jobs have value. So our home and our car has value. But it's not valuable enough to be worshiping it, right? Or what? I can't even remember what I have under here. Oh, yeah, my baseball glove, okay? This, this, this becomes like recreation. I, I used a baseball glove, but it could be any kind of sport or hobby. A good gift from God. Can you, like, is there value um, to sports? Well, certainly there's value to sports. But it's becoming something in our culture that's getting valued to such a degree that everything else kind of gets put on the on the side because sports become like yeah it's super valuable you can learn a whole lot about teamwork and you can do a whole bunch of stuff but the reality is that that can soon become something that the world around us worships and we can end up becoming just like them or in my pocket i have my phone you know kirsten sometimes can't find her phone which is i think kind of cool because she doesn't always have it with her Right? I never have that problem because I always have my phone with me. Right? And you start thinking, you know, when it comes to sports, here, here's the question I was asking myself. What does my weekly calendar say about what I value most or worship? Another good evaluation that you could do. When it comes to my phone, I could ask the question, what, not what do, but what does my daily phone use say about what I value most or worship? That when I have a free moment... Instead of my mind's attention and my heart's affection being drawn to Jesus, instead of spending a little bit of time in prayer, i got a free moment. I'm sure there's something that's happened in the world that I need to know about right now. And so we take it out, and we're looking at it, right? And so how much, how, how much of a temptation is it that this little pocket computer, right? Because, I mean, a phone, you use it occasionally to call, but it's basically a pocket computer. How much, how much of our attention does this demand from us? What does my daily phone use say about what I value most or worship? And so we need to recognize that in our time of need, none of these things can give us what we actually need. None of these things are able to provide us with what we need most. We who are sinners and need a right relationship with God, no matter how much success we have at work, how much we fulfill the American dream, how much success we have at sports, how much we know because we have a phone with us all the time, we will not be able to have what we need provided to us by these things. I tried it this week. I said to my phone, I said, hey Siri, help me. And you know what she said? She always says something. When I said, hey Siri, can you help me? And what did I say? I can't remember. I wrote down what I said. Hey Siri, help me. You know what? She said nothing. Usually she says, here's what I found on the web for that, right? And then she gives you stuff or she gives you an answer. I asked for help. I cried out. Couldn't help me. That's the same with every one of these gods that ultimately in the end, they cannot provide us with what we need. These other gods, the gods that the world all around us worships are not worthy of our worship. We need to remember that. We need to recognize that just like Israel needed a reminder as they lived in exile, they needed a reminder that these gods are not worthy of worship. We too need that reminder. All right, 
Let's move on. I want to talk about God. Enough about that, huh? Let's talk about God because that's what God does next in the passage. Verses 8 through 11. He's going to make this contrast and it's going to start with a command. Verse 8 It's the only commands in the whole passage. The rest of the passage, God is just saying what is true. But here is some application, right, for us. He's he's giving them commands. And what are the commands? Remember this. Stand firm. Recall it to mind. And he's honest with them about who they are. You transgressors, you sinners, you rebels, you're people who break the law. I, I know who you are, right? God knows our hearts that even though we might now say, yes, I trust in the God of the Bible, we're going to be drawn in this direction because that's the world we live in and that's the nature inside of us. So God refers to them as transgressors and he tells them three commands or four. Remember, stand firm, recall it to mind, and then again, remember. What are they to remember? Telling people whose tendency is to get a little bit wobbly, stand firm. Telling people whose tendency it is to forget, remember, remember, recall it to mind. Okay, So the only command we have in this whole passage is a command to remember, to recall to our mind, to stand firm. Instead of kind of being wobbly and wishy-washy and going with the same flow that everybody else is going with, we're going to stand against that. We're going to stand firm against the flow of the world around us. And we are going to remember something that it's easy to forget. What is that? The rest of verse 9 says this. This is bold. God says this, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God. He says it again. And there is none like me. Hold hold me up. You want to do some comparing? The silliness of all these other gods that people make and they set up and they worship and they cry out and they can't do anything. But I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. This is good news that God is reminding them of. And so what is it that they are to remember? What are they to recall to mind? It's not anything new. I know if you've been in church, this is not new. You're like, hey, Pastor Jeremy, you're getting excited about something I knew since I was a kid. Yes, I am. Because my tendency and our tendency is to forget. That's the tendency of God's people 2,000 plus years ago. It's so easy to forget. And so God makes the command, remember, remember, recall to mind. What are we to remember? I am God. There is no other. I'm God. There's none like me. There is no other God worthy of your time, your attention, your money, your worship. I am God. There is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. And then he's going to make this contrast with uh, the gods that the people all around them are worshiping when he says this. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Remember those other gods? How helpless they were? Somebody makes them, somebody lifts them, somebody carries them, somebody sets them in their place, all of that stuff. And our God, the one true God, there's none other like him because he doesn't only know what's going to happen. Like we have weather forecasters with great technology and they know very little of what's going to happen even the next day, right? 
They weren't able to say, hey, a tornado is going to rip through Marshalltown and Northeast Pella until moments before it happened. But our God says, I declare the end from the beginning. Way back at the beginning, when he first created time, he already was declaring, here's what's to happen at the end. Okay? That's the God that we know and worship. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Verse 11, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is good, isn't it? We have lists of things that we want to get done. We expect uh, the, the, the gods that, that we're tempted to worship to accomplish certain things for us, and then they can't. They prove that over time that they can't. We prove that we can't do everything we want to do. But we have a God who is bold enough to tell us the truth. There is no other God like me. My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. He will get it done. And then he says this. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. We try and make things happen politically by having summits and meetings, and, and there's all this, oh, what's happening underneath the surface, and what, and then you can watch like 24 hours of news uh, of what's happening in the world and the kind of things that are going on politically, and we easily forget that we have a God who can tell a falcon to fly from one end of the the, the the nation to the other. We have a God who can make men move. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. We have a God who makes things happen. He will accomplish all his purpose. And verse 11 ends like this. I have spoken. I will bring it to pass. I have purposed. And I will do it. Amen. That's our God. Our God is so bold as to to make fun of all the other gods, to help us to see the silliness of all of the gods that we're tempted to worship as he highlights his own uniqueness. There's no one like me. There is no other. I will accomplish all my purpose. My counsel will stand. I can make birds fly. I can make men move. I've spoken. I will bring it to pass. I will do it. That's the God that we worship. And I'm grateful for that. That's our God, and that's why we sing songs like, How Great Is Our God, right? So that all the world will know, how great is our God. So final application then, is just to remind us that we are a lot like God's people living in Babylon. That we are exiles living in a land where people worship all sorts of other gods. Do the other gods have value? And are they enticing? Oh, indeed they are. And our sinful nature is going to be drawn away. It's going to be drawn very often to these things. Because that's the gods that everybody around us is worshiping. And our tendency is to become like everybody else. But we are called to be different from the world because our God is like no other God in this world. Our God is wholly greater than anything else in this world. So, what's the command from this passage for us? Remember that. Remember that. 
You're prone to forget it. I'm prone to forget it. We need to remember. That's one of my aims as we gather together on Sunday morning. As Kirsten put together music for this Sunday morning, the aim of that this morning was to remind you of the greatness of our God because it's too easy to forget. One of the aims as I preach week in and week out is to remind you and to remind myself of the greatness of our God. I remember when I was first starting to preach, I read a quote that has stuck with me. I don't have it all memorized, but I can, I can turn right to the page in the book where I saw it, uh, you know, 20 years ago or whatever. No, not 20. Not that old. 15 years ago, okay? Um, <laughs> uh, and I remember this, and this is driven part of how I preach. I think one of the reasons that we need to gather together on a Sunday morning is that we might sing and we might hear the preaching of God's word to remember the greatness of God. Here's the quote. I put it up on the screen. The greatness and glory of God are relevant. It does not matter if surveys turn up a list of perceived needs that does not include the supreme greatness of the sovereign God of grace. That's the deepest need. Okay, I recognize Um, that there might be all sorts of things on your list like, hey, pastor, can you talk to us about this? Can you talk to us about money management on Sunday morning? Well, maybe. That's a need. Can you talk to us about marriage enrichment? Yes, that's a need. And we're going to get there. And there's ways that God's word applies to all that. But what I want to share with you more than anything else, the deepest need that we have is to know the greatness of God. Our people are starving for God, the quote goes on to say. And if God is not supreme in our preaching, Where in this world will the people hear about the supremacy of God? Like if you turn on Fox News this afternoon, they're going to talk to you about a lot of stuff. Some of it might be true, but they're not going to tell you about the supreme greatness of our God. If you turn on the radio, most stations are not going to talk to you about the supreme greatness of our God. If you're flipping around on your phone, most of what you're looking through on your phone is not going to be about the supreme greatness of our God. That's why I want my preaching. If i got 35 minutes, especially if I talk fast, 35 minutes, on a Sunday morning, to tell you about the supreme greatness of our God, that's what I want to do. If we do not spread a banquet of God's beauty on Sunday morning, will not our people seek in vain to satisfy their inconsolable longings with the cotton candy pleasures of pastimes and religious hype? If the fountain of living water does not flow from the mountain of God's sovereign grace on Sunday morning, will not the people hew for themselves cisterns on Monday? broken cisterns that can hold no water. So how are we being reminded of the greatness of our God? It's easy to get out of the habit, especially in summer where schedule is a lot different, of gathering together with God's people on Sunday morning. One of the ways that we are reminded of the greatness of God is that we gather together, we sing and we hear the preaching of the word. Continue to do that. Make that a priority. You can also do it as you read the Word of God on your own. I put up uh, on my desk a, a little note card I wrote on Psalm 119, verse is it 18, where it says, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things from your instruction. That before you open the Word on your own, that you are saying, God, don't just... I just don't want to like check something off a list. I don't want five little tips on how to live better. I want to see your greatness. Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things in your word. That reading the word of God leads us to worship the God of the Bible. Perhaps you're reminded of the greatness of God when you sing about it. So sing. Sing when you're all alone in your car. 
Sing when you're all alone in your house. Sing with your family. Sing when we're gathered. It doesn't matter if you can sing well or not. Just sing. That reminds us of the greatness of God. And as we fellowship with other Christians, we need to look at who are we hanging out with? If we spend most of our time with people who worship other gods, and we have our own sinful nature still, we're going to be drawn to begin to worship like them. We need to be living in this world around people who worship other gods. But we also need to make sure we have time in our lives for fellowship with other believers. And that when we're with other believers, we're talking together and rejoicing together in the greatness of God. That we would remind each other of that. So that as we are reminded together of the greatness of our God, we would stand firm in a world that's going to tug us this way. It's going to entice us with these things that we together can stand and say, no, we're different from the world because our God is like no other God in all of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Father, may it be our prayer that we look at everything that the world around us worships And we say, you can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. God, that we would be people who desire you above everything else. And God, I I, I just recognize uh, as I've talked all this, I'm going to talk to people expecting that they're believers. But you know better than I do if there are people that are gathered here with us this morning who do not worship Jesus as Savior and Lord. God, I pray that you would convict them of sin this morning, that they would recognize, that they would confess to you that they're an idolater, that they've sought to find all of their life and joy and satisfaction in something other than you, that they would this morning repent of that sin, that they would hear the good news, even as I proclaim it now in prayer, That you loved us enough to send your son. Though we deserved your punishment, you sent your son to live the perfect life that we failed to live and to die the death, taking the punishment for our sin on himself. So God, I thank you that you have done that. And I pray that those who are hearing that today who do not yet believe it, that they would repent and that they would believe, that they would put their trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and that if they have questions about it, they would talk to somebody else who they know is a Christian. God, our desire is to worship you above everything because you alone are worthy. No one can compare to you. We believe that, but we forget it too often. So remind us of that and help us to live out of that reality that we might be different from the world for the good of the world because you are God who is different from every other God in the world. Thank you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.